If you have a Bible with you, I will invite you to open with me again to the book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. We are in 1 Corinthians last Sunday for Easter, and this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we're going to focus this morning. 1 Corinthians 11. This is part 11 of our series there on the screen entitled God's Grand Design, The Beauty of Biblical Complementarity. So in this series, we are taking kind of a whole Bible look at God's design of men and women, equal in worth and dignity, yet different and complementary in design and function, and how that complementary design applies both to life, but also specifically to the church and to the family. That's what we're looking at, and we'll focus here in just a moment on 1 Corinthians 11. This week, I saw on the news, perhaps you did too, in Iran, the country of Iran, authorities announced that they will begin to use cameras in public places to identify women who violate the country's hijab law. Women in Iran risk arrest, the report said, for not covering their hair. Many have been defying the mandatory dress code as part of the widespread protests that followed the death of the 22-year-old, you probably saw that, 22-year-old Masa Amini while in custody by the morality police for allegedly violating the hijab rules. Authorities, though, show no sign of backing down on the issue. Quote, in an innovative measure and in order to prevent tension and conflicts in implementing the hijab law, Iranian police will use smart cameras in public places to identify people who break the norms, the state-aligned news agency said. After the women have been identified, they would be sent warning messages which detail the specific time and place they had violated the law. In the context of preserving values, protecting family privacy, and maintaining the mental health and peace of mind in the community and any, any kind of individual or collective behavior against the law will not be tolerated, end quote. Maybe you're not familiar with the hijab, what that is. You can see on the picture there. It's just a, it's a head covering scarf that covers the hair and the neck that some Muslim women wear in public. And for many such women in that culture, the hijab is, signifies the, both modesty and privacy. However, as we've seen on the news now, increasingly for many women, it has become a sign of subservience and suppression and inequality, and we're seeing the protest. Now, I start with that just because it's interesting that through much of history and in many cultures, some form of head covering by women has been practiced communicating some specific meaning in that culture. And it may surprise you this morning to learn that the Bible addresses that issue of women and head coverings, and it does so in the context of men and women in the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's what this text is about. First Corinthians chapter 11, headship, head coverings, and dishonor. Now, this is a very difficult text. It's the text you've all been waiting for, I know. It's the text I've been dreading somewhat. Not because I don't like it, just because it's, it's a very difficult text. I would say it's one of the most difficult texts to interpret and to apply in the Bible, yet we come just believing this is God's word. Every bit as much as any part of God's word. It's God's word for us, for the church today. 
So in our series, as I mentioned, we are part 11 of our series. In this part of our series, we are looking specifically at men and women in the church. Last time together, before Easter, we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 2 over a couple weeks. And I said that that text is a foundational text that deals directly with men and women in church, in the, the assembly. We come to 1 Corinthians 11 next because it has many similarities to 1 Timothy chapter 2 as Paul addresses again men and women in the church. It's a different subject than what we saw in 1 Timothy 2. We'll see that. But we'll see that Paul's reasoning, his grounding, his argumentation is very similar. He's going to go back to creation design, which we've been seeing in our whole study, and the nature of men and women by God's design. Let's read the text. So we? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, or excuse me, chapter 11, starting in verse 2, and I will read through verse 16. This text will be up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow as I read. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one in the same with her whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head uncovered, or covered, excuse me, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Any questions? <laughs> About two dozen questions, probably. Challenging text. Now, just, just reading that text almost feels like we're transported to another world, I know. Just on reading it, we, we sense, don't we, that the cultural factors are much more evident. They're much more on the surface in this text. Factors that Paul assumes that they are well aware of, as he writes to the Corinthians, but are largely unknown to us. The things like head coverings and shaved heads and long hair he points to, which just, just means we have to work a little harder to understand the principles behind these cultural practices. It's still very valuable. It's God's timeless word, and we have to work at what he's saying, the principles behind these practices. Now, just a word about context here. First Corinthians, we haven't been in this book as much. Paul in Corinthians is addressing many specific issues in the church at Corinth. He founded this church probably about three years before he writes this letter. And he's heard about divisions in the church. And he has to deal with that. And he does that at the beginning of his letter. And then it seems they have also written Paul a letter asking him specific questions to clarify specific matters. And he's been doing that really since chapter 7 of this letter. And head coverings 
are likely one of those issues they're seeking clarification on. When we come to chapter 11 through chapter 14 now, this section, Paul is dealing specifically with the public meeting or assembly of the Corinthian Christians. He's dealing with three specific issues in the church, in the public meeting of the Corinthians here. Three specific issues. The third of those issues, the last one he gets to, is the use of spiritual gifts in the assembly. And we will get to that partly next week in chapter 14, because as he's discussing that, he's going to come back to the issue of men and women in the church in chapter 14. So that's where we're going next Sunday. So that's the third issue he deals with. The first two issues that he deals with are found in chapter 11 under this heading traditions. See it there in verse two. I'm praising you. You hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now, when you hear Paul say traditions, that's a little different than the way we use the word when we think of, well, we had some Easter traditions or Thanksgiving traditions, some quaint customs that we do. For Paul, tradition here that he has passed along is equivalent to his apostolic teaching regarding specific practices. It's things that Paul has taught the church in person, face-to-face, the things that the churches do based on his teaching, based on a right interpretation and application of God's word. So when he says traditions, he's not just thinking, here's a personal preference or a quaint kind of custom. No, this is authoritative as God's word. So first, he commends them for holding fast their tradition, and he's going to deal and give more explanation to this first one of head coverings. But the second one, he does not commend them. He doesn't praise them is how they keep the Lord's Supper and what a travesty they're making of that. So that's the context here. Now, in our specific text that deals with this more obscure issue of head coverings, what's Paul's ultimate concern? Let me give you his ultimate concern here, even if we don't quite understand all the details. Paul's ultimate concern, the manifestation of glory or shame in worship by maintaining proper gender distinctions, maintaining or neglecting proper gender distinctions. That's what's important to Paul. The manifestation of glory or shame in worship by maintaining or neglecting proper gender distinctions. So while some of the details may be unknown to us or uncertain, for Paul, the issue at stake is significant. It's not trivial. Namely, the glory of God in worship. He just said back in chapter 10 as he was addressing other issues, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And now as you come as a church... The gathering, it is to the glory of God. And nothing is to distract, hinder the glory of God. That's what's at stake for Paul in these issues. He's going to talk about dishonor, glory, shame, disgrace several times in this section. He even references, again, you talk, this is an obscure reference in verse 10, because of the angels, he says. Now, that's obscure. We're not quite sure what he means. Likely, the sense angels, this angelic host, are zealous, zealous for guarding the honor and glory of God, the worship of God. And somehow, what we do, even as we gather, affects that, or they observe that. These angels here, he says. So there's, there's something significant at stake in what Paul is writing. Now, the focus of Paul on gender distinctions here is not firstly on roles or functions like we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 2, but interestingly, it's on one's attire, what one wears on one's head. And that's the obscure part for us. But for Paul, this issue This is related to proper gender distinctions in the body of Christ. 
and something significant is at stake. And so I've been saying all through this series that while this issue that we're looking at, God's design of men and women and how that functions in the church is not a first level gospel issue. We can have differences and still be in gospel fellowship. It doesn't mean it's insignificant. I have said to you many times that I think there's probably something higher at stake than we really understand. <laughs> and I think you get a taste of it. I think we're on the threshold of it here as we come. Something that we would consider as mundane as a head covering. Paul is relating to the proper glory of God, either shame or dishonor. So let's give attention. One more note of context here or by way of getting us into this text. Just the question, what is the covering that he's talking about and its meaning? Again, Paul assumes it. It must have been well understood in this culture, but it's not for us. We're at a disadvantage. It's not said anywhere else in the Bible. It's not described. We don't know. So we just, we kind of have to piece some clues together from the text itself, a little bit of what we know of the culture to get at it. What is the covering and its meaning? So let me just give you a couple words because I think it'll maybe help us as we work through Paul's argument to understand what he's saying and why it's important. So what is it? Well, not merely the woman's hair, but likely some type of shawl used to cover the hair. It's not necessarily a veil covering the face. That's a different word here, but just covering. The word he uses throughout just means to cover or to hide. And we have other uses of that language to mean something physical on the head to cover the hair, to cover the head there. So we don't know exactly what it is. We don't know exactly what it looked like. But that seems to be what he's referring to. I say it's not merely the woman's hair. Some have thought that, that the covering is her hair itself. Don't think that makes sense of the text. That comes from, if you look just, again, by way of introduction, look down at verse 15 as he ends it. He says, if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So he does say her hair is a covering, but he seems to be saying that the woman's long hair is an indication that she needs to wear a covering. That's the connection. Nature is teaching that. Otherwise, Paul's whole argument here kind of falls down, doesn't make any sense if he just means the woman's hair. So it is some physical shawl, scarf type thing on the hair. But the big question is, what did it mean? What did it symbolize in this culture? Again, we're at a disadvantage here. We don't know. It was obvious to this culture. Just like, you know, I started with that story in a Muslim culture, just to give you an illustration of a culture who knows exactly what that means. I'm not trying to say what the Bible means is exactly what they mean in a Muslim culture. Don't misunderstand me. But it's just an example of a culture by that physical head covering. They know what it means. They did it. So what does it mean here? Well, just have to kind of piece together from the text. I think we can get at at least its basic symbolism or meaning. So I'll say it this way. It symbolized a right relationship to, quote, authority and an implied submissive and modest posture. I think that's the main symbolism of this head covering. It symbolized a right relationship to authority and implied a submissive and modest posture by the women. The key verse in trying to get to the understanding or symbolism of the covering is verse 10. So just look there. We'll come to it in a moment in art, but just look there. It says, therefore, after Paul makes the argument, he says, therefore, the woman ought to have a, mine translates, a symbol of authority on her head. Now, the word symbol of is not in the Greek language. It's just literally the woman ought to have authority on her head. We'd expect Paul to say, and the woman ought to have a covering on her head. That's what he's been saying. But now he switches instead of saying covering. He says, the woman ought to have authority on her head. So here we get the best clue of what the covering symbolized. Paul's telling us. Instead of just saying a covering, he says authority. So this covering is related to authority. And I would argue that in the argument Paul is making, 
The authority he has in mind is this submissive posture to a husband's authority or to a husband's leadership and to this male leadership in the church. That's the authority uh, that she is symbolizing through the covering. The husband's headship, the words he'll use, leadership and proper leadership in the church. So like we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So for the woman in this culture and in the church, in the assembly, in these activities, not covering the head would signify rebellion against authority and likely in that broader culture convey a more licentious or provocative way of appearing, appearing more like a man, blurring gender distinctions. And Paul says that results in shame, in dishonor. So that's my best effort at the symbolism, the meaning of it that I said we don't have in our culture. Other cultures may have things similar to that, like we see in Muslim cultures. So like in a Muslim culture, again, they have different connotations. But for a woman to remove that in defiance, they they know what that's communicating. So too here. So there you go. Let's just briefly walk through Paul's argument here under this heading, glory and shame in worship. Glory and shame. Just these three three steps Paul has. Number one, the basis of this practice. What's the basis of this cultural practice of covering the head? It's verse three. It's his lead statement. It's the foundational verse. But I want you to understand. This is how Paul launches into this subject. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of, Of every man, man is head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. It's a curious way to start. We don't know where he's going with that yet, but that's how he started. I want you to know this. So what's the basis for Paul? So here's the first point. The hierarchy of relations that exercise proper authority, including man and woman. He's giving this kind of hierarchy of relationships where there is a legitimate exercise of authority and men and women fit into that i want you to understand that christ is the head of every man the man is the head of a woman obviously key question what does he mean by head what does he mean by head the head of something there's been a lot of ink spilled on that question this Greek word, kephale. What does it mean? But I think it's clear the way Paul uses it that he has some form of authority in mind, one who exercises authority over in a legitimate way. Some have tried to say that head just means source, the source of life, but that really lacks really any clear evidence. It may be a secondary implication of being the head, the head certainly does provide and nourish for those the people or those under that person's authority. But the clear use of Paul, I won't go through all his uses of head. He uses it very consistently throughout Scripture to mean one in authority, the right kind of authority, not abuse of authority, but this God-given authority over. So we, we use the word still today. person is the head of state. I mean, well, they're, they're, they're the one in authority, yes, they're the head of the department, right? We, we still use the word that way. That's a biblical use of the word. Now, obviously, Paul, as we read the text, is using the word head specifically because of his concern with the attire of the head, right? He's, he's using it in this kind of dual sense. So he uses that word that implies authority because he's going to talk about the physical head itself and what covers it. So throughout this text, Paul is going to go back and forth between literal head and metaphorical head. The one in authority over your head to your head, right? He's going to go back and forth and use this in kind of a double way. So his basis is that men and women fit into this authority structure that God has designed. He says there at the end, look at it, at the end of verse 3, to kind of round off, to complete this hierarchy structure, God is the head of Christ. That's quite a statement. I think he 
ends there, not because that is germane to his whole argument. He's just completing what this whole structure is. But it's in the context of the worship of God, the honor of God. And he says God is the head of Christ. Now, when he says that, I think when he says God is the head of Christ, he's referring to Christ in his incarnation earthly ministry. That's what Parker was highlighting at the beginning of our service. Christ comes as a servant in his incarnation and he submits to his father. We saw it in John 8. He, he submits to his father in everything he does. I don't think Paul means he's ontologically inferior in his essence. Nor do I think he's referring firstly to the eternal functional kind of subordination of the son to the father. That is these inter-Trinitarian relationships. I think it's more modest than that. Christ comes as a servant, and as that, in his incarnation, he is subject to the Father. The Father is in authority over him. God is the head of Christ. So I just note that. We need to be cautious. I think those who have, in the past, argued for what I am, complementarian design, have made too much of this and probably overstated it. We need to be cautious about making statements about the inner Trinitarian relationships and then applying them to men and women. Should be very slow to do that. Here, though, I do want to highlight this. Christ's submission to his Father, to the headship of God the Father, is a legitimate application for us. So, not the main point here, but just take this and hold it and savor it. Christ submitting... Christ coming under the headship of his father, the father being an authority that is a head over Christ, does not imply inferiority or a demeaning status of Jesus, does it? He is equal in essence. He is equal to the father in every way. But he comes in glad submission and it honors him. He's equal in worth. He's equal in honor. He's equal in essence. And yet he gladly takes this role of submission to his father's will as his head for his good. So Jesus is a good model. I know the word submission is not in favor today, if it ever has been. I know people cringe when they hear that word, especially when we start talking about husband, wife, male, female. So, take Christ as your example. Nothing demeaning in his submission. Nothing inferior. Take God as example of a true headship, right? Gracious, not harsh. So, Christ serves it. We'll get to Ephesians 5 here in a few weeks when we talk about marriage, where Christ serves as a model for husbands of how to love and cherish wives as the head. But Christ also serves as such a model of right submission. So that's not the main point, but I just want you to savor that if you're struggling with these issues. Look to Christ. Second note under this, Paul's kind of the basis here of his practice. He gives this hierarchy. And then next, the headship of the man husband is based on the creation order and design of the man and woman. The headship of the man slash husband. I say it that way because just like we saw in 1 Timothy 2, when it talks about man and woman, those terms are ambiguous in Greek, whether he's referring to husband, wife, or just generically man and woman. Same, same words to be used. Context has to tell you. I think here in this context, he's mostly talking generically just about man, woman, as he goes to creation. But a primary application of what he's saying is going to be husbands and wives, as the majority obviously would be married, though not all were. So it applies to man, woman, and yes, has very specific and unique application to husband and wife. So I'll say it that way. The headship of the man slash husband is based on creation, order, and design of the man and woman. So now Paul, look, just skip down verse nine, verse seven, excuse me. Paul's going to develop his basis. He's talked about head. He hasn't explained it. He's going to develop it in verse 7 through 9. Four, he's going to give reasons. A man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and the glory of God. And woman is the glory of man. 
So what, is, what does he mean by that? Well, then he's going to explain it. Verse 8. He's going to go back to creation. For man, he's thinking of the male, Adam, does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. What's Paul doing? He's going back to Genesis 2. Now, we've been over that ground in detail, so I won't belabor this point, because we've seen it over and over. It's so key, as I said, to this whole study. Go back to Genesis. Go back to the creation. That's where Paul's going. He's grounding this back again in the created order, and he's just noticing that the man was created first, and that the woman was created for the man's sake. And again, Paul sees that as very significant, very definitional for men and women, how we are created by God in our design. So the woman is created from the man. That's what he's getting at. We saw it. Remember, the man was created directly from the, the ground, the dust. But the woman was created differently from the side of the man. We thought on all the significance of that. She corresponds to the man. She's of equal worth and dignity, yet different and complementary. It's the whole basis of our study. It's a complementary design. Goes right back to the beginning. God did that intentionally. He did it purposefully. He's teaching us, that's what Paul says, in the way he did it. And she was created, remember, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will create or make or build for him a helper like corresponding to him. We thought on that, that she is made for the man in the sense of carrying out these divine mandates that God has given directly to Adam, and she is essential in the carrying of those out. So he's noticing that, that in the creation, man's created first, the woman's created from the man, and the woman's created for the man's sake. And he is seeing in that this ordering of headship and helpership that we've talked about. That's the basis for it. It goes back to creation. So the order or function is grounded in creation. It's not grounded in the fall. It's not the result of sin. It's part of God's good original design. So that's the exact same argument that Paul made in 1 Timothy 2. That's why I know we're on safe ground here. He did it much more cryptically there, just shorter. Remember when he was talking about, I don't allow a woman to, ex to teach or exercise authority over man for... Adam was created first, then Eve. Same argument. He's just going right back to creation. There's meaning in that. So it's grounded in creation. And that's what leads in verse 10 to say, therefore, the woman ought to have authority on her head. Do you see the flow of thought? What authority is he talking about? Well, he's talking back, back to this creation order of the way God designed the man and the woman. So that's a lot. But that's the basis. The basis is grounded in this right biblical hierarchy that exercises authority that's seen in God's created design. Number two, here's the second heading, the description of shameful behavior. So right in the middle of developing his basis here, he, he launches into the description of shameful behavior. He moves in verse three from talking about the head immediately into the issue of covering the head. What is the shameful behavior that's happening or could be happening? Paul wants to prevent from happening the improper here it is the improper use of a head covering while praying or prophesying brings shame on one's quote head that's what he says the improper use of a head covering whatever that was while praying or prophesying brings shame on one's head so for the man to cover his head he says disgraces his head he doesn't launch in, again, immediately to the reasons, but it comes back to what does that symbolize? Well, it's symbolizing this symbol of authority. It's, it's the man adorning himself like a woman, in this sense, and rebelling against God's created design for him. That's the disgrace that would bring if the man, the woman, he says, verse 6, or verse 5, every woman who does not whose head is uncovered, excuse me, while praying or prophet, disgraces her head. Again, why would that be? Well, if we understand the symbol, it's a rebellion of God's established order based on creation. And it brings shame, dishonor. It's the word he's using, disgrace, mine says. And he's using the word head in a dual sense, very deliberate. 
brings shame on her head. What do you mean? Well, on herself and the one who is her head. Her husband? Here specifically? The husband brings shame, yes, on himself, but on God? That's what's at stake here. So he's using that word in a dual sense here. She brings shame to her husband or to leadership, male in the church, not honoring her husband's leadership, but throwing it off. So that's why removing this veil likely includes the connotation of immodesty or independence. And that's why Paul says it would be a disgrace. Specifically, he highlights while praying and prophesying. Now, again, this is one of those issues we don't have time for. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. That's not Paul's main focus is to define all of what that means, but to just say he's assuming that activity is happening, but to do it with head uncovered would be a disgrace. Why does he highlight those two activities, praying and prophesying? Likely because they're common, public, out loud speaking functions where this symbol of authority is uniquely appropriate. So he highlights those as would be inappropriate or shameful to not have this symbol. So that's the disgraceful behavior he's referring to. But notice what's related to it. The second note. The lack of head covering for a woman would give the shameful impression that she is appearing like a man. And vice versa for the man to wear one will give the shameful impression that he is appearing like a woman here. It's just pretty remarkable how Paul is going to connect not only these issues of authority and submission, but masculinity and femininity with appearance, with the way they dress. So because he says, look at verse six again or at the end of verse five. For she is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it's disgraceful, and he assumes everybody in this culture knows that's disgraceful. Nobody wants to do that. So again, he's going back to that culture where they knew that a woman with a shaved head, that's a sign of extreme humiliation and shame. A woman with cutting her hair off if you don't want to do that, Paul says, then cover your head. It's the same meaning, Paul is saying. You see that connection there to her appearance? Why would that appearance be so shameful? Well, again, skip down there to verse 14. As he concludes his argument, he comes back to this and says, Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. At the end there, Paul is appealing to nature. When Paul uses that language, by nature he means the natural instinctive sense of right and wrong that God implanted in us. That aligns with God's design. And he says there's something in our nature that is in nature that's instinctive about right and wrong that applies to gender distinctions. Did you know that? We do know that. We know it instinctively. Now, those cultural or those distinctions will look different in different cultures like they did here from our culture. Yet there's something basic in nature, Paul says, in this natural instinctive sense that applies to gender. It's the same argument he makes that we saw in Romans chapter one, uses the same language when speaking against the practice of homosexuality. It is Parafusin, against nature. What we know instinctively is right or wrong, implanted by God, that is against it. Well, so here, in the appearance of the man and the woman. Here he's talking about hair, because he's talking about head and hair throughout this. Something in the hair length. Again, the Bible doesn't describe exact hair lengths of what that would be. But there's a sense they knew here that long hair was a glory. And not so to man. It would be a dis Why? Why would it be a shame? Because it looks like a woman. And for a woman to have her head cut off looks like a man. And that failure to maintain those distinctions, Paul says, is shameful and goes against God's order. So that's weighty. Just how significant. 
that is in our culture today. Say more. We, this culture that has more gender confusion than any in the history of the world we live in. What a timely word. I mean, who would have thought this obscure passage doing head coverings addresses such a relevant subject for us today of gender distinctions that is part of the very design of God, that we honor God in embracing those distinctions. One last heading, and then I'll close by applying the qualification. Paul, Paul just inserts a qualification. He does not want to be misunderstood. The qualification, number three, to avoid misunderstanding. He qualifies because it could be easily misunderstood. Hearing Paul argue from creation and that the man is, the woman's created from the man and for the man, and this symbol of authority could easily lead to that men are superior. Just men are of more value. So he adds this. Look at it, verse 11 and 12. He says, however, that's how he knows. I'm, I'm going to give a qualification here. I don't want you to misunderstand me. In the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, that's back to creation, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. So what's his qualification? It's this. There is a profound sense of interdependence and mutuality between men and women. Men are not superior in value. We just keep underlining that. There's been a tendency in cultures and in history and sometimes in the church to wrongly apply these things. So Paul qualifies it. Don't misunderstand me. There is a profound interdependence between men and women since creation, a mutuality, an interdependence of men and women, right? Yes, the first woman was created from the man, and every man since has come from woman, right? Men, we don't exist without women. That's the basic truth, right? You have a mom. That's the way it works, right? That's the way we come into being. So he's just, he's stressing this interdependence to show, no, no, there's, there's an equality of value and worth, men and women and dignity, though difference in function maybe and role. So don't understand. Oh, we just need to hear this because so many of the arguments that I hear against what I'm teaching about any notion of headship or submission or leadership, male leadership, the arguments usually go along the line. If you teach that, you are teaching that women are inferior. That's just not the way the Bible works. Christ was not inferior to his father. But the, God was the head of Christ. Right? No, no. These complementary relationships, yes, there's leadership and authority, do not imply superiority and inferiority. So just keep that because our culture is going to say something very, very different to us. If you limit me in any way, you are saying I'm inferior. That's not what we're saying. So good qualification by Paul. I appreciate him doing that. Let me move really quickly here to just application. What do we do with this text? Right? Thousand dollar question here. Should women still cover their heads in church today? It's a big question we take away from this, as Paul commands it. And so my, my answer now is no. No. It was a specific cultural expression of a universal biblical principle. Now, I know others have seen that differently, and maybe if you see it differently and convinced by God's word, I would not want to... Really try to convince you otherwise. Follow your conscience. Obey God on that. There's, there's just love to celebrate just the simplicity of I want to obey God here. So, so I want to be cautious here, but I would say no. We, we don't even know what the exact practice was. So if you do want to obey it, if we say oh, it's still true today, it, it would be kind of a symbolic obey. We don't know exactly what they did, nor what it means. It's not described anywhere else in the New Testament. And it no longer, in our culture, it no longer communicates what it communicated there. It doesn't communicate that, which would kind of be a meaningless symbol. When we interpret the Bible, 
These are big issues. I'll just, just speak to it just quickly. We, we must distinguish between fundamental principle and the application of that principle in a specific culture. The universal principle based on creation that Paul is getting at is this spiritual male husband leadership headship. That's the principle that we've seen all through the Bible based in creation. The cultural expression of that here is this wearing of the head covering. In our cult, we don't have an equivalent physical expression of that abiding principle today in our culture. Other cultures might have different things. We don't have anything clearly, especially in our gender-confused world we live in today. So we, we have to be careful. Now, I know what someone's going to say. Aren't you being inconsistent? Aren't you, don't you have a double standard? Because when I was in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I argued very strongly, that's not a cultural interpretation. And now you come here and you don't like this one as much, so you say, ah, it's just cultural. <laughs> Aren't you being inconsistent? Well, maybe, but I hope not. I really, I'm not trying to be inconsistent. There, there is a significant difference. And this is where we need to be careful in our interpretation of God's word. In 1 Timothy 2, when Paul said, I don't allow women to teach or exercise authority over a man, the principle that he was teaching is the same principle. Spiritual male leadership, headship. But in that case, the, listen to this, the principle and the application are coextensive and inseparable. That is, male leadership headship is inseparable from exercising authority, right? And that's seen everywhere in the scriptures. It's taught repeatedly. It's seen everywhere. It's not just a cultural expression. It is inherent or definitional to the principle itself. But here, that's not the case. The wearing of the head covering is not definitional and inherent. It is symbolic. So on the one hand, one is inherent, definitional to the principle and consistently applied through Scripture. Here, the other is symbolic. I'll give you another example. Foot washing. Jesus did that and then said, I want you to do likewise. (laughs) And we don't do it. Why? Because we're understanding there's a principle he's teaching of this humility and service of one another that has a specific cultural expression. A physical cultural expression that we don't have. The principle still abides. The cultural expression does it. Now, there are only a handful of these in the whole Bible. The Bible is remarkably free of these kind of cultural expressions that don't apply in our culture. It's really remarkable. It's not steeped in these. There are literally a handful. And normally, they are physical actions that carry symbolic meaning. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Please don't kiss me. (laughs) I'm sorry. Don't even hug me. No, I'm just kidding. Right, we, we understand physical action and symbolic meaning in that. But the Bible is remarkably free. So I can say a lot about that when it comes to hermetic interpretation. I hope I'm not being inconsistent or just picking and choosing here. So, So that's first application. Let me just quickly give you these other two. So what is the principle? What are we to take from here? Well, it's what we've been seeing through a lot of our study. Glad submission to and support of proper male leadership in the church and the family. That's the abiding principle. That that head covering was symbolizing. Appropriate submission to God instituted authority. Glad hearted submission. Believing this is the way God designed things. He knows best. It's what I'm made for. Again, we don't have a clear physical symbol of that kind of right submission. But we do have the right attitude and demeanor of gentleness and respect that applies this principle. And I say again, if you struggle with it, and I speak to women, especially as we think about church leadership and in the church, or as we talk about marriage and in the home, Look to Christ as your model. It's not demeaning. God knows. God is good. 
His word is good. And he designed us to the core as men and women. He knows how that design function works. He wrote the manual. Believe him, even if you don't fully understand it. Second, maintaining clear expressions of God-given gender distinctions in all of life. Maintaining clear expressions of God, given of which this authority and submission is, is primary here. But again, Paul is connecting that to even this more fundamental understanding of masculinity and femininity. Head coverings are inseparable from the principles of expressions of gender distinctions. What it means to be male and female. And again, Paul hints at that, gives it there at the end in verse 14 again, when he says, does not even nature itself teach you about what a man looks like and what a woman looks like? Doesn't even nature? Yes, it does. It's part of who we are. It's God's design of it. Nature teaches us and we need to believe that and embrace it. And in our confused, very confused world we live in and culture, as I said, unlike any other, how we need to speak clearly to these issues as part of God's good design, not as oppressive, not in hostility, but wanting people to embrace God's design, his good grand design of men and women in this beautiful complementary way. Look to Christ again as our example, our Savior who came to rescue in submission to his Father. Let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Father, we we confess this is a hard text. And there are things here we maybe don't fully understand and grasp. Help us. We, we come wanting just to believe your word and obey your word and to believe your design and to act out, to follow, to express what that is in our lives. So give us wisdom to apply these things. Give us understanding. Give us a right, gentle and respectful attitude and spirit to your word, to the leadership you've placed over us in our homes, in the church, even in our society, so that you may be glorified in all we do. We ask through Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.